0: Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files episode 48. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to look at the so-called German Organ Mass, a series of organ works included in volume 3 of the Klavierübung or keyboard practice collection published in 1739, although the initial engraving of the music began some years earlier. These works, prepared as Bach put it for music lovers, and particularly for connoisseurs of such works and for the revitalization of the spirit include an opening prelude and closing fugue in e-flat major and in between 21 chorale preludes BWV 669 through 689 setting parts of the Lutheran mass and catechism followed by four duets BWV 802 through 805 which may actually have been intended for harpsichord performance. We're going to begin with the so-called Trinity or St. Anne prelude and fugue in E-flat major, BWV 552. The St. Anne label has been applied because of its resemblance to William Croft's chorale melody of the same name, whereas the Trinity title has been awarded more on the basis of the three-part symbolism inherent in the work. This prelude and fugue, which were not necessarily joined in performance until the 19th century, have been subject to a great deal of commentary over the decades. One reason for this is the synthesis of styles represented here. The German contrapuntal style, the French style as manifest most obviously in the form and style of the French overture, but also to some extent in the ornamentation, and the Italian style, as represented by, among other things, clear references to aspects of the Italian concerto style. Of course, we've seen evidence of these influences in Bach's music in a number of earlier episodes, but they are at times crystallized here in ways that are particularly interesting. The other reason that this prelude and fugue has attracted so much attention is related to its use of musical symbolism. Bach scholars, fond of discovering numerological and other symbolism in Bach's works, have found these pieces to be particularly rich in providing potential examples. But we are going to begin by focusing more on the strictly musical aspects of the Prelude and save the fugue for later. The Prelude, which is quite long, usually over nine minutes in performance, begins very much in the style of a French overture in five parts, combining bold, thickly textured homophonic chords, often featuring sharp, slow-resolving dissonances resulting initially from suspensions, and frequent use of the typical dotted 8th-16th note melodic figures. These often exhibit a generally descending contour at first, but as the prelude continues, strings of powerful ascending phrases are more in evidence. Bach scholar Peter Williams has labeled this first theme as representing God the Father, and as you heard, the theme is undeniably majestic. The texture is not always easy to penetrate, particularly when the performance is in a highly reverberant setting. The recording I'm using is more modest than some in this regard, but the details of the individual lines are nevertheless sometimes difficult to follow. The opening chord progression is a powerful if conventional one, which ends in my excerpt with a clear cadence on the dominant chord of B flat. Following that cadence and a return of the descending sixteenth note run we heard first in Measure One, we hear the first diminished seventh chord. It makes a striking effect, but is soon revealed as simply the first step toward tonicizing a C minor chord that is, briefly highlighting it as if it were the tonic chord. And that starts us on our way through the circle of fifths. This coincides with a somewhat new melodic idea, still based on dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythms, but now featuring a distinctive ascending melodic leap in the pattern. This entire pattern, which moves sequentially down by step, and which the middle voice often supports with parallel sixths, dominates for the next several measures, introducing new chords but ultimately ending back on e flat major here is that section arrived now at the second major section of the Prelude, one which contrasts sharply with the first. This new section is often identified as stylistically Italian in contrast to the obviously French-influenced opening theme. It relies primarily on two thematic ideas. The first begins in the right hand with an upbeat pattern of descending sixteenth notes with the final sixteenth note then leaping up a fifth a series of descending staccato quarter notes harmonized in black chords, and concluding with an emphatic pedal tone. This idea is repeated four times, alternating forte and piano, with the last two repetitions up a fifth and tilting us toward the key of the dominant. Williams labels this more approachable theme as associated with God the Son. After eight bars, this contrasting section yields to a new one, initially based harmonically on the Italian theme, but with a new syncopated figure consisting of ascending and descending sixteenth notes juxtaposed over the top. This ten-bar passage serves as a transition back to the first thematic idea, with its dotted rhythms and suspended dissonances. This section employs the manuals only, with the pedals temporarily dropping out, and the resultant texture sounding relatively thin and to some degree like a solo section in a concerto movement. We begin in the original tonic key of e flat major as before, but Bach soon moves away from the security of that key and by the use of chromatic alterations and repeated melodic sequences directs us toward B flat major. As you could hear, my excerpt extended into the return, in varied form, of that original, rather loud and very dignified thematic idea. The key is B flat major this time, and the quick sixteenth note runs heard earlier play a much more important role here, both descending and ascending. After the varied return of the first thematic idea, and having arrived in C minor, we encounter the third major section, and a new thematic idea, just two bars long in its original version, in the form of a fugue, clearly a reference to the German tradition. This new idea is taken by Williams to reference the Holy Ghost flickering like tongues of fire. It begins in the alto voice in the right hand on C, with a syncopation somewhat like the syncopated figure we heard in the earlier transition. It then plummets down the scale in sixteenth notes to land on B natural, from which point it begins a reasonably familiar ascending figuration pattern. After two bars, the subject is imitated at the fifth in typical fugal fashion in the soprano part of the right hand, the left hand providing a slower moving countermelody against it. Two bars after the subject has finished in the soprano part, the subject is taken up an octave lower in the left hand. After a brief sequentially-based developmental episode, the alto voice re-enters in E-flat and the soprano follows, this time on B-flat. The initial subject enters six times before yielding to another sequential transition passage. Here is some of that fugal activity. The sequentially based transition passage that follows takes us to a return of the second part of the first theme. The second theme is then heard up a fourth and this is followed by another appearance of the fugal subject and its imitation. This time the pedal is engaged, initially providing a new counter subject and then later participating in the imitation itself. The subject appears for a final time in the unlikely key of B-flat minor, but the prelude comes to a conclusion with a final statement of the first theme back in E-flat major. It is probably as weighty and complex a prelude as any Bach ever composed, but we have a number of other works in this collection to look at, so we'll move on now to a sampling of some of the chorale preludes found in this collection. We'll look first at the preludes based on chorals associated with the Kyrie, and we'll begin with BWV 699, Kyrie, Godvater and Ewigkeit. Charles Sanford Terry's translation for the chorale on which this is based is, Kyrie, God our Father evermore, mercy thine in bounteous store, thou of all things ruler and creator, Eleison. The prelude is written in a strict and somewhat archaic style, emulating in part the Stile Antico of Fresco Baldi's Fiori Musicali, a collection of liturgical organ music, including three organ masses, first published in 1635. Bach was very familiar with Fresco Baldi, and he was, in fact, one of the earlier Italian composers he most admired. Although it sometimes made him the subject of criticism for what some considered his antiquated and overly austere ways, Bach was understandably proud of his mastery of older musical styles dating back to the 16th century and extending up through to the early and middle Baroque. He was also, of course, reasonably well-versed in more recent styles, including even the gallant style which seemed to pop up in some rather surprising places in some of his compositions. But here he seemed more interested in summoning up the solemn beauty of the older chorale motets. The cantus firmus, or borrowed melody, on which the first piece is based, comes originally from a Catholic chant, Kyrie Fons Bonitatis, from the 1537 Naumburg book. The borrowed chant provides the first three notes of the opening fugue, set in the Phrygian mode starting on G. The subject begins in the tenor voice in the left hand and the imitation of fifth higher, two beats later in the right hand. The subject then enters on the original pitch level in the pedals. A measure and a half later, the subject is reintroduced in the soprano voice on the original pitch level, with the first three notes heard in augmentation or longer note values, but it soon yields to the subject heard a step lower in what begins as the alto voice. By measure 11, we have reached a cadence on B-flat. You'll notice a number of passing dissonances, including a number of suspensions, and the pedal part is active and sometimes surprisingly chromatic. But all dissonances and chromatic interpolations are treated according to the rules of later Renaissance counterpoint, and the overall effect is, again, rather austere. Here are the first 11 measures ending on the cadence on B-flat. My excerpt ran a little past the cadence on B flat a cadence that brought with it no real sense of repose the subject is reintroduced immediately in the left hand and just a measure later in the right as the tonality begins once again to wander somewhat as early as measure 8 we catch a glimpse of the fugue subject in inversion and in measures 34 and 35 we encounter that inversion in stretto that is the imitation enters before the statement of the subject is completed. Here is that section with the strato inversion, admittedly rather difficult to hear since it occurs in the middle of the texture, with a pedal bass line very active against it. We then head toward the conclusion of the movement with the original fugue subject presented in thirds in the last three measures, but again it's a little difficult to separate out from the rest of the texture. We'll look next at the second of the three Kyrie chorale preludes, BWV 670. This one, based on the chorale, translated as Christ our hope and comfort, Thou hast redeemed us from all sin. Jesus, Son of God, Mediator, to Thee enthroned on high, We, Thy servants, from our hearts beseech Thee, Eleison. This is also in the Phrygian mode built on G. Here are the first two phrases of the melody as found in Bach's collection of 371 harmonized chorales transposed to agree with the organ version. It will be quite a bit easier in this case to hear how the chorale melody is made use of in the prelude. The texture is, not surprisingly, again dominated by motet-like imitation. But the references to the chorale melody, at least the first two phrases, are more direct and easier to discern. In fact, the soprano line in the right hand quotes the first two phrases, although the rhythmic configuration is more complex than in the original chorale melody to allow for various suspended dissonances with the imitating voices, which enter first in the alto, actually a fourth lower, after just two beats. Halfway through the fourth measure, the pedal comes in with the imitation an octave lower than the alto. Meanwhile, the counter created by first the soprano and then the alto, as they continue on after their presentation of the subject, become increasingly complex and surprisingly chromatic as we head toward a cadence on B-flat. Here are the first seven bars. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard the middle part, the tenor part of the left hand, make its appearance for the first time, presenting the chorale melody in longer note values, very much as a borrowed cantus firmus would have been used in the older style. The presence of the melody in longer note values does not prevent the other voices from themselves continuing to exploit its opening phrase. Two measures after the cantus firmus appears, the soprano voice is again quoting its opening phrase, this time a fourth higher than the original, and another two and a half measures after that, the alta voice takes another turn, down a fourth from the original pitch level. Here's another excerpt beginning with the entrance of the cantus firmus, the chorale melody in long notes, in the middle part. As you may have noticed, the sustained notes of the cantus firmus drop out briefly after four measures only to pick up where they left off a few measures later. This allows Bach to introduce some textural variety with only the soprano and alto lines active for a few measures. Then the pedals re-enter, not surprisingly with the opening motive of the prelude, although chromatically altered to prepare us for a cadence on G. Once the cantus firmus in long notes is introduced, it becomes the glue that holds the diverse and quite independent parts together. As we proceed, there are more elaborate melismatic passages of eighth notes, with soprano and alto sometimes operating in parallel sixths. But the chorale theme, especially its opening motive, never loses its grip on the proceedings and maintains a presence to the final measures, as the final notes of the cantus firmus deliver us back to G, and then, ultimately, a cadence on C major. But we're going to stop here and move on more briefly to some of the preludes falling into different categories in this collection, and we'll begin with the first version, BWV 678, based on the chorale, titled in English, These are the Sacred Ten Commandments. Here are the first two phrases of that chorale melody, which begins with six repetitions of the tonic note before beginning to ascend up the scale. Bach's larger setting of this chorale, for manuals and pedals, is a very majestic and complex one abounding with canonic imitation and with the chorale melody presented in longer note values starting in measure 7. The opening measures, which introduce imitation between soprano and alto lines immediately, sit on a tonic G major chord for almost four measures. In measures 5 and 6, the harmonic rhythm is accelerated as Bach introduces an interesting descending chromatic line in the alto voice which definitely catches the ear. When the chorale melody is introduced in the middle of the texture in longer note values, and soon after subject to canonic imitation at the octave, the chromaticism is temporarily abandoned, and the harmonies are primarily restricted to tonic and subdominant chords, although it's not long before Bach introduces new chromatic chords to direct us briefly to A minor. My excerpt extends to the introduction of the chorale melody in long tones and the beginning of its canonic imitation. Robert Reimenschneider, in his 1959 edition of this collection, states, in reference to this prelude, that the errant wandering of the pedal part, with its lack of definite cadence or objective, presents a splendid picture of straying humanity without a moral objective. I'm not sure that I'd characterize the pedal's motion as errant wandering since it very effectively provides a foundation for the harmonies above it, but it does avoid strong cadential motions, so perhaps Reimann Schneider may have a point here. The second chorale prelude based on this chorale melody, BWV 679, for Manuals Without Pedals, has a quite different personality. It takes the repeated notes that open the chorale melody and use them to launch a short fugue or fugetta in the style of a jig, The opening melody does not follow the chorale melody note for note, interjecting new ascending leaps into the pattern of a sort very typical of jigs in general. It's really quite a jolly work, its contrapuntal complexities notwithstanding. Riemann Schneider states, The brightness and cheerfulness which characterize the piece should portray the happiness and satisfaction that has come to humanity by its adherence to the Ten Commandments. This sort of interpretation may strike a modern listener as a bit antiquated perhaps, but it is not far-fetched and would, in fact, be very much in keeping with Lutheran interpretations common to Bach's time. And Schneider also points to the fact that the fugue subject enters ten times in a prelude based on a chorale which specifically references the Ten Commandments. I don't think there's any doubt about the numerological symbolism contained within this collection, Bach scholar Peter Williams has drawn attention to the trinity symbolism widely found in Klavier Ubung III, including the fact that there are 27 pieces, three times three times three, three flat key signatures for the framing pieces, three distinctive thematic areas in the opening prelude, and three sections in the final fugue. But he also points out that a similar list could also be made for the numbers 2 and 4 in different connections. But commentators differ on the extent to which we can attribute specific word-painting gestures to these preludes. These preludes, certainly to the extent that they conjure up in the mind of the parishioner a specific chorale melody with very specific textual associations, could be thought of as engaging in word-painting once removed. But Williams has made the point that some of the settings have only a tenuous connection with the text. He states, it is possible to imagine the composer reacting to a chorale melody and its text in other than graphic ways. We cannot know why, he continues, a certain musical figure sprang to mind whether there was an unconscious reference to a particular word or to the general mood of the text, or how a musical motif is related to anything but itself. It is the indefinable nature of inspiration that is at issue throughout Bach's career as a composer of organ chorales, something that prevents us from ever knowing the workings of this or any composer's mind, or even how much he was relying on tradition on musical devices similar to others and older organists. On the other hand, Williams and others are hesitant to completely discount all musical devices which could be seen in one way or another as word painting, or as he puts it, pictorialism. For example, Williams and many others have cited the prelude through Adam's Fall, BWV 637, from Bach's earlier. Orgel line collection as an example of a clear and obvious word painting gesture when Bach introduces a series of dramatic falling sevenths in the bass line to highlight and reinforce the text of the chorale. But back to the preludes of this collection, we'll look briefly at only a couple of others. From the Lord's Prayer section, BWV 243, Bach creates a very long and elaborate five-part chorale fantasia based on a chorale melody which he also employed in his traditional four-part setting in the St. John Passion. The first two phrases are... Here are the opening measures of the prelude in E minor or E dorian and 3-4 time. They are rhythmically daunting to say the least. The chorale melody enters in measure 11, coinciding with the first clear cadence on E minor, in half notes and quarter notes. It begins in the highest voice, but is soon largely swallowed up by the complex texture. My final chorale prelude example is Christ our Lord Came to the Jordan, BWV 684, from the Baptism section. The opening phrase of the chorale melody is. This prelude in C. Dorian makes use of another very complex and active texture, beginning with leaping motives in the soprano and alto parts of the right hand against running sixteenth notes in the left hand. By the third measure, the rhythm becomes even more complex in the treble clef as dotted eighth and sixteenth note figures are played off against combinations of two sixteenths and an eighth note tied across the beat. And yet, despite this and other rhythmic complications in the upper voices, the chorale melody, which is added in the pedals after the first cadence on C minor, is presented in the clearest possible manner. After the first phrase of the chorale melody concludes on G minor, the manuals continue on with a four-measure insert based on earlier motivic ideas which ends with an emphatic cadence on G minor and, a little later, the introduction of the second phrase of the chorale in the pedals. We've obviously not sampled from every prelude or even every category. Bach has incorporated into this collection other preludes based on chorales associated with other sections from Luther's small catechism, including those for the Creed, Repentance, and the Eucharist. But we've heard enough examples, I think, to provide a sense of the variety of approaches which Bach uses in these preludes. We'll move on now to the monumental fugue in E-flat major that closes the so-called organ mass and which features five parts and three separate but sometimes intermingled subjects. The first of these, two and a half bars long in 4-2 meter and beginning in the tenor voice, is dignified yet restrained. It contains three skips or leaps that give it a distinctive quality, moving first down a third, then up a perfect fourth in the first measure. Bach balances this leap with a descending step as we move to the second measure. After another ascending leap of a fourth, followed by another descending step to balance it, we return to the tonic note. By the way, the point has been made by more than one scholar that this subject, while it has its distinctive qualities, is by no means strikingly original in type. Roger Wibberly points to similarities between it and a prelude and fugue in E major by Buxtehude, certainly a favorite of Bach's, and perhaps also a work by Konrad Friedrich Hurlbusch, a German-Dutch composer and organist. Any such similarities would of course in no way detract from Bach's achievement here. Here's a simplified example showing the subject leading into a flow of quarter notes which acts as a counter-subject to the first imitative entry in the left-hand bass voice in measure 3. Here's a performance of the first 21 bars. The subject begins in the tenor, is imitated in the right-hand bass line starting in measure 3, and in measure 7, by the soprano voice, up an octave. That much is reasonably easy to hear. Two measures later, the alto enters, down a fifth again. But this will probably be a little more difficult to hear, because the counter subject of flowing quarter notes becomes more dominant at this point, even moving in parallel thirds and tenths in places. In measure 14, the subject enters in the pedals two octaves lower and that will be very easy to hear. Meanwhile, suspensions abound as we head for a cadence on B-flat major in measure 21. Beginning with measure 21, Bach introduces a particularly clever stretto effect, with the subject introduced in the alto and imitated just two beats later in the soprano line. It's a bit difficult to hear the first time around, although the change in texture that occurs when the stretto voices both move higher in their range is clear enough. After the stretto entrance, the tenor line enters with the subject again on the original pitch level. As the lowest voice in the texture at that point, this entrance isn't hard to hear, but it's somewhat disguised by being harmonized in thirds. By the way, you'll notice that even when the subject does not recur intact, its shape, or at least fragments of that shape, continue to echo through the texture, even in the flowing quarter notes of the counter subject. Bach introduces another example of strato imitation a couple of measures after the tenor entrance, this time in sixths in the upper two voices. The shape is easy enough to recognize in the top voice, but it's hard to hear it as two distinct entrances. It is, however, very easy to recognize the final entrance in the pedals, which begins to unfold six bars before the end of the section. We'll hear it from the modulation to B-flat major to the end of the first section. The second section in 6 4 meter and again in E flat major begins with an initial statement of the E flat tonic chord and a highly contrasting new subject, consisting of a series of eighth notes in an undulating ascent, which drops down a third from the first measure to the second and then starts the pattern over again. Here's a simplified example showing the two measure subject in the bass and a little of measure three where it moves into a counter-subject against the imitation at the fifth, which the tenor will introduce in measure three. Or is it a highly contrasting subject? The change in meter is significant, of course, and the texture for this section is somewhat different than for the first because the pedals are abandoned here after the opening chord. But, as Wiberly points out, this new subject does bear some resemblance to the counter-subject from the first section. It's not identical, of course. The theme here is missing the dramatic octave drop, which appears in the middle of the counter-subject in the first section. But even though this section employs eighth notes rather than quarter notes, the flow is similar nevertheless. And, of course, this new theme is immediately subject to imitation in the tenor line three measures later, where the imitation drives us in the direction of B-flat major. Three measures after that, the subject enters up an octave in the soprano, as the texture accumulates to three parts, and as it thickens further to four and even occasionally five parts, the soprano comes in yet again, this time up a fifth. At that point, we cadence in B-flat, and the texture is reduced to two parts once again, as the counter-subject takes center stage, treated sequentially in the top voice. Let's hear that much. The tonality seems somewhat in flux at this point, although ultimately we're going to find ourselves back in B-flat. The subject is soon reintroduced, but initially in a freely inverted version in the left hand. But soon the original ascending version of the subject regains dominance, even as it continues to compete with motivic elements from the counter subject. Right at the end of my excerpt, with the solid cadence on B-flat, you heard the texture reduced to just two voices and the subject re-enter in the bass voice against a new counter subject, which turns out to be the subject of the first section. Both subjects are now imitated and the tonality is once again in flux, with our ultimate goal this time being C minor. At this point, everything is in play, both subjects as well as recurring motives from the counter-subject. Here are the final measures of the section. (laughs) ¶¶ The final section, a five-part double fugue for full organ in 12/8 time, beginning in C minor, is usually described as being in a more modern jig-like style, compared to the self-consciously antico style heard in the first two sections. The subject begins again on B2 of the measure, following a tonic C minor chord and an arpeggio up the tonic triad. Some commentators have suggested possible motivic links between the new subject and those from the first and second sections. I don't want to overstate any potential motivic connections here, but this new theme does begin with an undulating descending motion to it, which is somewhat the reverse of the second subject, although after reaching down to the tonic note, it springs right back to the fifth of the scale. It is, at any rate, a very distinctive and memorable theme, and it is, naturally, immediately treated in imitation. The alto comes in at the 5th, starting on the 2nd beat of bar 2, accompanied by a counter subject that alternates longer notes and 16th note swirls. We arrive at a cadence on G halfway through measure 6, although it's somewhat disguised by a suspension that overlaps it. Right after the cadence on G, the soprano checks in with the subject, up an octave, but then in the seventh measure of the new section, something unexpected happens in the top voice. The soprano quotes the subject again, up a fifth this time, but then flows right into the first subject from the first section of the fugue. That first subject then migrates to a middle voice, while references to the third subject continue above it. From this point on, we hear new versions of the first subject, several new entries of the third subject in the pedals, along with some clear references to the first subject also in the pedals, and sweeping patterns of sixteenth notes that suggest not only the counter subject for the third subject, but the second subject as well. Here's the passage beginning with the entrance by the soprano, which glides into the quote of the first subject, and the various machinations that follow. The grand climax naturally occurs in the final measures, where the first subject is quoted in the petals against elements from the second and third. Here's the final part of the movement, initially dominated by the third subject, but with increasing prominence given to the first. It's quite the tour de force and a fitting conclusion to a grand collection of liturgical works for the organ. When I say liturgical, I don't mean to suggest that the chorale preludes in particular were necessarily employed, by Bach or anyone else, within a conventional service. Wolf and others have made the point that they are, by and large, too long and too elaborate for that purpose although some may have been used to provide music for communion, that part of the service which will allow for longer, more fully developed works such as these. They are, rather, to be thought of more as potential recital pieces, which use as their fundamental creative material the traditional chorales, which, because of their links to the Lutheran service and Lutheran's catechism, were of great importance to the pious Lutheran and certainly to Bach himself. As usual, we've not been able to cover all of the material in this collection and haven't looked at the four duos at all. We have, in fact, omitted some very interesting and important pieces, but perhaps listeners to this podcast may feel encouraged to pursue some of these on their own, certainly a worthy endeavor. In the next episode, we'll look at Bach's musical offering.